Have you ever wanted to start your own podcast, but you weren't sure where to begin? Anchor is the only tool that you will need. It has everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, it's totally free. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer. And if you haven't heard, they are connected directly to Spotify, so they make it super easy to distribute your podcast. And best of all, Anchor is completely free again. You can download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I'm just kind of having a recording session where I just hit record and start speaking and I just say whatever's on my mind. So um, we'll let editing figure that out. This is Veronica with the weekly wellness podcast where we're breaking stigmas with real solutions. We talk about everything mental health and I'm so happy to have you. Hi, my friends. It is March, which means it is Women's History Month. If you missed the blog post, I did a repost of an old blog post talking about the mental load and who it impacts most. And guess what? It's women. It's mothers. It's grandmothers. It's aunts. It's women, hands down. Or if you are a male partner who wants to help your female partner out, please feel free to go and read. There's a lot of great resources on the blog, weeklywellnessblog.org. Okay, let's get into it. In talking about Women's History Month, there's a lot that I want to talk about. I want to start with a little bit of the history behind Women's History Month. I know that you probably have heard this all month long from all sorts of different places, but Women's History Month started as just a week. Um, We didn't even have a whole month. It started in 1978, so it kind of correlated with International Women's Day, which if you don't know is March 8th. Um, So I missed the mark by quite a few days, but um, there were some posts on the blog and on my socials for International Women's Day, so definitely check that out. So Women's History Month wasn't declared a full month of celebration until 1987. So it kind of went full circle here. And um, from 1978 to 1987, kind of got that fun numerology for that. So if we're talking about Women's History Month and mental health, as I always talk about, we need to talk about the stigma around women's mental health in general. I believe this all started when men started to get in power and they decided that women who didn't want to cooperate with them probably were just crazy. So we can't talk about women's mental health without talking about hysteria. Attributed as the first mental disorder, especially when it comes to women's mental health, it's been around for as long as words have been around as long as they could have a word describing hysteria. And I wish you could see my finger quotes right now because a lot of women were diagnosed with hysteria when in reality they had serious medical issues. And that still happens to a degree to this day in 2022, which we'll get into later. But I just want to touch base on the fact that women were simply second-class citizens. They were not allowed to vote. They were not allowed to own land. They were not allowed to work. And they were not taken seriously when they had a medical condition. And this also includes when they were giving birth in horrific, horrific medieval conditions. It just, I, I can't imagine. 
even in ancient civilizations such as ancient Egypt or Greece, they diagnosed women with hysteria or something like that. There were readings in the oldest medical document containing references to depressive syndromes. So basically anything mental illness started in ancient Egypt. There were thoughts that if the uterus had moved upwards, the hysteria might be cured. So they tried to move it. I'm not going to get into details, but that sounds painful and horrible. And basically, women are not off to a great start in finding medical care. And no matter what society or a time period it was that they diagnosed women with hysteria or other forms of mental illness, it was on the women to find a cure for themselves or figure out what they needed to do to quote-unquote get back to normal. Like I said, not off to a great start. And it wasn't even until the 20th century that men, including doctors, realized that women's health as a whole, especially mental illness, isn't always tied to menstruation or how many babies they gave birth to. And hysteria, the hysteria theory, only came out of style in 1980. That's not that long ago. Women could be put away for anything that their husbands or other male authority figures said that they did wrong, even standing up to their husbands or, you know, wanting to go off on their own. They were considered mad and having no domestic control. And they were literally called crazy. They were called hysteric. They were diagnosed with hysteria, thrown into a mental or insane asylum and kept there until they were deemed healthy. We will definitely be getting into the beginnings of mental health treatment in another episode, but I want to move forward and focus on some women who were simply not listened to. Even today, we find symptoms of women being treated for things that their doctors think are all in their heads. As someone with a chronic illness or two, I definitely can understand how polarizing this issue. And when you have a doctor who's not willing to make all of those results happen, you're going to be frustrated. And nine times out of 10, it happens to women. So that's why with this episode for Women's History Month, I really want to focus on women's health, mental health especially, how it's been treated throughout the years and how we can treat it moving forward, even in our own homes. Mental hospitals were overcrowded with patients, with 231 patients squeezed into eight wards and another 250 on a waiting list. And I don't want to touch too much on the methods that they used, but sometimes they used restraints such as straitjackets or chloroform. Some doctors even claimed 70% success with calming a woman down by performing genital mutilation. It's not new that women get called crazy or dramatic for any sort of normal human emotion, but we're not the ones starting wars, are we? Take for instance MS. Women are three to four times more likely to get the disease than men, but until the 1920s, men were diagnosed with MS more often than women. When symptoms were the basis for diagnoses before MRIs, women were presenting the same symptoms and were diagnosed with hysteria. And women are in worse mental health than men are in the United States today, including maternal and overall health. The statistics are staggering. 
Depression is diagnosed twice as often among women, including chronic disability or migraines. And as far as menstruation goes, for some women, it could be as painful as a heart attack. And I want to speak on this too. I have endometriosis and hypermobility disorder, and it took a long time for me to get diagnosed, but I personally know plenty of women. It took way longer because their doctors thought that they had anxiety. And whether or not they had anxiety is beside the point. The point is their illness was not all in their head. It was physical symptoms that were manifesting because of their illness through their body. They were sick and doctors did not take them seriously. And women, even though we are statistically more sick and more stressed out than men in the United States, we're less likely to seek out care and even less likely to be taken seriously when we do finally get an appointment. Going back in time a little bit, I want to talk about a forgotten female shell shock victim of World War One. I. I didn't know any of this story until I researched, but we all hear about how horrible shell shock was and when PTSD came to fruition and the soldiers were all coming back from the First World War and the world in America was completely changed. For a lot of people, their symptoms weren't taken seriously, whether they were a man or a woman. But I have never heard a story such as this one until I was doing research for this episode. And shell shock was kind of created to separate what we now know as PTSD from hysteria because there wasn't really a separation. And shell shock was attributed mostly to men while hysteria was attributed mostly to women. Even though in a lot of these cases, men and women were presenting the same exact symptoms. There even was a movement to separate regular shell shock from those of civilians. It was called civilian war neuroses. And civilian is key here where it reinforces that separation between men and men who were obviously fighting in the war and women who were on the home front. And we can't forget the hundreds of women who worked in France and Belgium as nurses and ambulance drivers who were right by the male soldiers during wartime. They suffered incredible violence and physical suffering, and in their diaries and letters home wrote descriptions of being fired on by enemy forces who used the ambulances to gauge the distance to the trenches. They spent long nights suffering and hiding amongst the amputations and broken bones and falling shells. They even got hit with secondary gas as the acid fume clinging to the victims they were helping burnt their eyes. Simply trying to help their country turned into something that would stick with women for years to come. And when it came to shell shock, women often weren't diagnosed, let alone listened to in the first place. And it's kind of ironic to me because men were expected to be able to handle the trauma of war, but they put so much time and energy into treating them for shell shock and other like disease, while women were expected to not be able to handle the trauma of war and they weren't treated. They were simply sent home and they said, good luck. And this is something that isn't even talked about by a lot of historians. It's really hard to find information on this. There were even women who developed similar symptoms to men where they would stutter or have nightmares, and they still were diagnosed with hysteria instead of the infamous shell shock. And in 1917, a British woman named Elizabeth Huntley decapitated her own daughter. She went to trial and her family testified for her and said that she was wonderful and such a kind woman until the air raids happened. When the war broke out, she was terrified and with her children by her side, they were screaming and she could not handle it. She had a nervous breakdown and she murdered her child. 
She was deemed unfit to face trial. Um, she did end up going to a London women's psychiatric hospital that actually is still in operation today. There's not much on her case. And like I said, I haven't heard of it until I started researching for this episode. And it's crazy to me because shell shock is a common term that is found all throughout history. And in regards to medical neglect in women, I want to get into a little bit of gender bias and how that affects our healthcare, even in the United States. We are not in a third world country. And women are less likely to be diagnosed with diseases like cancer in a timely fashion than men. Um, it isn't that they wait longer to seek their medical attention, but the delay actually occurs after they've already been to their doctor. And women are more than twice as likely than men to make three or more visits to their doctor before diagnosed with anything, including cancer. Each year, an estimated 40,000 to 80,000 people die due to diagnostic errors in the U.S. alone. See, women have a higher risk of depression and anxiety than men, yet they are diagnosed incorrectly 30 to 50% of the time. Anxiety and depression are symptoms of other diseases that then go unrecognized and undiagnosed in women. The stress of suffering from an undiagnosed and therefore untreated illness takes a mental and physical toll on anybody. And once women are diagnosed with a psychological disorder of any kind, they have a higher risk of physical symptoms being attributed to that and being dismissed as psychosis. Now, medical malpractice isn't always a gendered issue, but I think it's very important with the history of hysteria and women not being taken seriously to bring that all the way up to current day in 2022 with another case that I have not heard of. get into this story i do want to take a quick break and ask you all to check out the blog um it is weeklywellnessblog.org that's where i started and i still post there maybe not every week every other week hopefully we are at a weekly wellness blog on facebook and instagram or you can send us a message right on anchor or spotify send me an email at weeklywellnessblog.org or reach out to my Gmail, weeklywellnessblog at gmail.com. I manage all of those platforms. I will get all of your messages and anything that you want to share, any stories, questions, or comments for the blog or the podcast, please reach out. And we're right around the halfway mark, and this is my second episode, so I just want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for working through any technical difficulties with me and any little issues that I need to work out. Please let me know. And being a woman should obviously have no influence on the type of care that you receive. So we're going to talk about a few different cases today of an OBGYN who was terrorizing women and ruining their lives. Luckily, not to spoil it, he is behind bars, but he made it a long, long time and had a very lavish life. So we're going to be talking about Dr. Javid Perways. Forgive me if that is not uh, pronounced properly. Um, I tried to listen to a couple different news broadcasts, but they kind of all said it differently. So forgive me. Based out of Virginia, Dr. Perways was an OBGYN, which means his patients were women or woman identifying. 
He had his regular everyday practice, and when it came to surgical procedures, he performed those at the Harborview Surgeries and at the Chesapeake Regional Medical Center, and he performed surgeries and had a practice for decades. He ran a solo practice with two offices in Chesapeake for nearly 40 years. According to records from the court case that he was a defendant and he spent more than $2.3 million on credit card purchases during the past 40 years, especially during the last 10 years when he was really making a lot of money off of these surgical procedures. And we'll get into what exactly he did in just a minute. And before we get into what he did do to these women, um, I do want to point out that now he is 70. Um, So he was definitely in his later years when he got caught doing what he did to them. Which is crazy to think about that somebody could have their own practice for 40 years and do the horrific things that he did. After all this time, he was a veteran gynecologist who knew what he was doing. And unfortunately, he knew how to manipulate his patients into doing what he wanted. And ultimately, his goal for this was to submit claim of insurance fraud so that he could make an income, an extra income for his lavish lifestyle, including his vehicles, his Mercedes, all of his fun little toys. He butchered women for this money. His life was lavish. He was getting away with this. He was having his own practice, performing many, many surgeries to the point where his nurses and staff were extremely stressed out on surgery day, even calling it Parawaz Madness. But in November 2019, he was named in a two-count criminal complaint charging him with healthcare fraud and false statements relating to healthcare matters. Not only did he perform unnecessary surgeries and submit those to insurance to pay for his wonderful, fun lifestyle, he also lied to his patients and manipulated them into thinking they needed these surgeries to live. Perways altered the due dates of his pregnant patients, lying to them, and made the mothers think that the proper care was being taken. What he did is record the due dates to be much earlier than they actually were. He even induced patients before they were 39 weeks pregnant, disregarding all of the normal and safe medical practices of his field. This was allegedly due to his need for control over his patients, and he made sure that he was scheduled at the hospital on their fake due date. This made sure that his patients were under his thumb through the entire process, not one to let the beauty of pregnancy slip him by. Ways also made sure to control every piece of information that his patients consumed, correcting them on literature and ensuring them that he knew what was best. And it wasn't just his pregnant patients. In addition to this, he urged women to undergo invasive, irreversible procedures such as sterilization, sometimes even full hysterectomies. He used his reasoning that if they didn't undergo the full hysterectomy as soon as possible, they would develop cancer. And in some cases, he had already wrongly diagnosed them with cancer before the procedure, aiming to cure the fake diagnosis that he gave them. And for all of this, he was put on trial and faced 465 years in jail for his unnecessary surgeries and butchering. In the end, he allegedly made $2.4 million from insurance companies and women's suffering. He was convicted in 2020 of 52 counts related to his scheme to defraud health insurance programs. 
and the total insurance fraud amount was $4.7 million. And the way that he got most of that money was because he was at the hospital and he induced his patients earlier than the normal gestational period. That minimizes the risk to the mother and baby to ensure he would be reimbursed for the deliveries. And a lot of these patients were on Medicaid, and Medicaid requires a 30-day waiting period for elective sterilization. He backdated the papers and forged them so that he didn't have to wait to get his money. He also conveniently failed to disclose to insurance companies he worked with that he was convicted on felony tax evasion in 1996, or that his privileges at one hospital were temporarily suspended in 1983, and this was also due to unnecessary surgeries that he was performing for kickbacks. I want to talk about one of this doctor's victims. Her name is Susan Anderson. Originally visiting the OBGYN for problems in between her menstrual cycle, he suggested several surgeries in order to quote-unquote fix her problems. Performing six procedures on Susan to treat the precancerous cells that he said she had, Dr. Pruway said that this would help until he decided she needed a partial hysterectomy in 1988. Susan's symptoms continued even after her surgery, and her new OBGYN confirmed her fears. The partial hysterectomy was not necessary, and other surgeries left the lining of her uterus quote-unquote paper thin. Susan received a medical bill from Dr. Perways in 1991, and this was for $1,140. I guarantee she took one look at it and said, I am not paying for that. And it sounds like that's what she did and good for her. But when she didn't pay, the doctor sued her in Chesapeake Circuit Court and he won. But as part of the lawsuit, Susan wrote a letter to the circuit court judge with a plea for somebody to please take a closer look at this doctor and his practice. Susan came with evidence. She said she does not feel that she owes the money because the surgeries performed by Dr. Perways were not only unnecessary, but irreversible. In writing to the judge, Susan pleaded with them to please take a closer look at his practice. All of his surgeries cannot be ethical, and there is no way that if this happened to one woman, that it didn't happen to multiple others. And other victims did come forward, and I am so sorry for what the victims went through, but I am so glad that they were able to come together and finally get some justice. All too often, justice is not found in these cases, and patients go on wondering if they're crazy for what they were thinking. And mind you, this all happened 28 years before Dr. Perways was sentenced. Luckily, one of his nurses raised these same types of concerns that Anderson had to the FBI. A year later, a federal jury convicted per ways of performing unnecessary surgeries on procedures on unsuspecting women to profit off of a health insurance fraud scheme. In the decades before his arrest, patients and a local hospital reported per ways to the Virginia Board of Medicine. Women have filed lawsuits against him in Chesapeake and Portsmouth. Nurses raised concerns about him to their supervisors at Chesapeake Regional Medical Center. Nothing was done. Nothing, nothing was done. And this man continued his practice for 40 full years. Four decades. 
and he was happy with his life. He was busy. He thought he was a great surgeon, I'm sure. He kept buying his cars. He didn't ever have to worry about money. I imagine he started to sweat when the money started to run low. So he convinced more women to get more unnecessary procedures. He convinced them, especially on Medicaid, like I said, forging documents in order to get kickbacks from the insurance companies. And this isn't uncommon for medical doctors, including male medical doctors. For some reason, they can be prosecuted and pay their fines or do jail time and still continue to have their practice. And there is a database out there for doctors and all of the information on them. It's called the National Practitioner Database. It was established by Congress in 1986. There's one problem with that. The database is only available to insurance companies and hospitals, not patients, not the public, and not people who want to advocate for themselves and their loved ones. And state boards of medicine are generally compromised of physicians, which makes a conflict of interest because doctors are expected to regulate one another, and in most cases, they simply don't. Now, whether that's out of fear or the status quo, I won't know that. Even after investigators tracked down the president of the Virginia Board of Medicine, they turned them down. They did not want to be on camera. There was a confrontation that was filmed. I do have a link to that article in my show notes. The president of the board said that they are prohibited by law from expanding on any order of the board, which essentially means they have to go through the board to expose the board. And if any of you have experience with close-knit circles like that, or you have any idea how politics work, that is simply not going to happen. It's, it's not going to happen. Unless an outsider is able to infiltrate that group to make that change, they will not be able to achieve that. The people who are in the group already are so deep-rooted and set in their ways that they're afraid to go out of the status quo. If they wanted to change the way the system worked, they probably wouldn't get voted in in the first place. And despite all the red flags and the previous small fines and jail time that he faced, there were no real repercussions until 2019. And this is only because the victims, these amazing women, advocated for themselves and each other and took this all the way to the FBI. And that's not easy. Anyone who has any sort of experience with the medical field knows that patient advocacy is one of the most important things in today's world. And this is especially important for women who, like I said at the top of the show, may not be taken seriously. And there are is sexism and bias in the medical field. As much as we would like to hope there isn't in the year 2022, there's no way around it. Sometimes women just aren't taken seriously at the doctor's office. Being a self-advocate means learning how to be direct about what you need with your healthcare profession. Some doctors don't like hearing from their patients directly, but you have to understand when they're in a situation where they're told they are wrong, their egos get hurt. <laughs> some, some people, let alone some people in the medical field, cannot handle that. And check the hospital that you go to or your doctor's office. They might have a patient advocacy center with professionals who are designed to help you in the best and safest way possible. And don't forget, you are protected by law as a patient. You have some very specific rights. And one of the most important rights that you have is informed consent. 
This is when the doctors or the surgeon brings you out a whole bunch of papers that you sign. Make sure you read them and make sure you understand the procedure that you're undergoing. And it never hurts to get a second or third opinion. And if all else fails and you really truly feel uncomfortable, you are allowed to find another provider who better suits your needs. So for this special Women's History Month episode, we got into a lot of different topics. I want to leave you with the fact that your fate is in your... If something feels off, please trust your gut. Do not be afraid of people who tell you you're overreact. Do not be afraid of people calling you crazy. Hysteria doesn't exist anymore. Speak your truth. (laughs) That's all I can tell you is definitely be sure to speak up when you feel threatened, when you feel unsafe, when you feel uncomfortable. If it weren't for those women in our past and our ancestors, if they didn't speak up, we wouldn't have the right to. Don't forget to follow me on all my socials. And um, thank you for listening to my second episode. There will be plenty more to come. All of the sources are in the show notes and at weeklywellnessblog.org. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.